Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is our text for today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And as you find that, I'm going to ask that you would stand. We're going to read this passage. This is the same passage that we read last week. That's okay. We're going to begin in verse 18. Genesis chapter 2. God's word says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word for his church today. You may be seated. The title of our message today is the same as our title last week. God's design of man and woman. One author said this of Genesis chapter 2. He said, The destiny of the human creation is to live in God's world with God's other creatures on God's terms. I agree with him. In other words, God sets the rules, not us. And as we have seen, God's rules, God's design for human life is good. It is good for humanity. It is good for the glory of God. God's rules, His design, lead to life, not death. Lead to human flourishing, not human demise. Last week I preached the first part of a two-part sermon entitled God's Design of Man and Woman. I told you last week I originally intended this to be one message, but felt led to break it up into two sermons. Now, because today's sermon is so connected to last week's, I think it would be good to briefly highlight what we learned last week. And I would encourage you, I I, I normally try to make every sermon, even, even when they piggyback off another sermon, just stand alone. But this is just one where this really is the second half of last week's sermon. And so if you didn't listen or weren't here for last week's sermon... Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, not because I think it's a great sermon, just because I want you to hear everything that I believe this passage is saying and, and, and that I want us to know. And so you can do that on Facebook, on our YouTube channel, uh, your podcast app. You can find it on there. Um, I just encourage you to, um, to do that. Um, but I do want to highlight real quick what we talked about. When it comes to God's creation of humanity, we've seen in the first two chapters of Genesis that God specifically created humans in his image and that he specifically created humans, male and female. And he made both in his image, which means that humanity existing as male and female are essential parts of God's original design, which, as God said, I want to keep reminding us of this because the world says the opposite. God said of his original design, it was very good. It was very good. Because both male and female are made in the image of God, both have equal value and worth in God's eyes. And yet we see in Genesis chapter 2 that God made man and woman distinct 
from one another. And this distinction between male and female is not an inconsequential detail in the creation account. In fact, I think Genesis 2 is written in such a way to highlight the distinction between male and female. Last week I gave you a main idea statement, and I want to change it just slightly for today, okay? Hopefully make it a little bit better. And that's this. God's design of man and woman provides an essential distinction for the flourishing of human society to the glory of God. To the glory of God. Now, last week I left off that ending, to the glory of God, and and I was a little convicted about that this week. I, I should have included it. While I absolutely believe God's original design of humanity, which includes the essential distinction between man and woman, does very much so promote the flourishing of human society, I don't want us to think that the flourishing of human society is the main goal of life. Ultimately, God's design of humanity is for His glory. Which means God has designed humanity to flourish, not merely for the sake of human flourishing, but ultimately for the sake of His own glory. Which means then, this is why I think it's important, it means then that when we reject God's design of humanity, we're not merely rejecting that which is good for humanity, we are rejecting that which brings glory to God. And there are dire consequences for all who reject God. As Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Yes, we want humanity to flourish, but because there's a greater reason for humanity to flourish, and that is the glory of God. Now, last week I shared with you two truths we learned from Genesis 1, 18 through 25. The first is this. This is from last week, again, so I'm going to go quickly. God designed humanity to be built upon the clear necessity of both man and woman. In Genesis 2.18, we see that something was missing from God's creation. God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so we see in this passage that God added the missing piece. He made a woman from the man and he gave her to the man. Both male and female are necessary we need men and we need women in order for society to flourish. And, and not just human society as a whole, but families in particular need a man and a woman. And churches need men and women for the home and the church to be all God designed them to be. But then we went on last week to look at a second truth. We spent a considerable amount of time on this truth last week. And that's this. God designed human society to be built upon the complementary distinctions between man and woman. Men and women are necessary, and they're different, and those differences complement one another. Those differences are good. In a very real sense, we complete one another. Now, that does not mean that if you're single, somehow you're not fully human. That's not what that means. What it does mean, though, is that human society would be very short-lived if everyone was a man, or if everyone was a woman. Society would not last very long. There would be no human flourishing. That would be the death, the end of society very quickly. We need men and women, and we need the differences which make us male and female, which means we don't just need men to be, uh, need men and women. We need men to be men, and we need women to be women. And we looked at some of those differences last week. I'll try to summarize those quickly. We looked, talked for a little bit about um, how God made us physically different. And we also talked about how God made us different in our function or in our role in particular areas of life. 
But because our function does not determine our value, then we can say that men and women are both equal in their essence and at the same time different in their function. And that that function is their God-ordained roles to live out in their lives. From the very beginning, the very beginning, and then as you trace all throughout Scripture, the Bible lays out a pattern of male leadership, especially in the arenas of the home and the church. It's just undeniable. You cannot read the Bible um, uh, faithfully um, and, and not say that, and ultimately believe that. Now, those were the two main truths we saw last week. Today, today I want to share with you two more truths. But before I share them with you, I want you to know that pretty much we're just going to talk about truth number three today, okay? Uh, I'm going to spend about one minute on truth number four at the end of the sermon because it's really going to set up next week's message because all of this is just tied together. Um, and so um, just know the rest, pretty much the rest of our message today is going to be uh, truth number three. Now, truth number three is, in some ways, just a sub-point of the second truth. In a way, it's application of what we looked at last week, that men and women are created with complementary distinctions. But I want to highlight this particular distinction that I want to spend our time on today. And I want to highlight it, one, because I want you to know the terminology, some people deny it. Some people would say it's not, we don't see this here, but I think we're going to see that we do. Um, I also want to highlight this distinction because the New Testament, and we'll spend a good bit of time today on this, the New Testament instructions for the church specifically refer back to this creation distinction as the reason for male leadership in the home and in the church. So I think if we're going to read our New Testament instructions for the church and the home accurately, we have to understand what the foundation for that is, and it is Genesis chapter 2. And then third, I want to highlight this particular difference because it clearly reveals that biblical gender roles are not cultural practices that change with time, but timeless principles that are rooted in creation and should be applied across all times and all cultures. Now, what is this particular difference we see in this passage? What's this? we see a difference in the created order of man and woman. Truth number three is this. God designed human society to be built upon the created order of man and woman. The created order of man and woman. Now, as I I mentioned last week, one of the differences we see in chapter two is between the man and the woman is which one came first. Is it the man or the woman? Well, it was the man. Man was created first and woman was created second. Man was created in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The woman was made in chapter 2, verse 22. And not only was the man created before the woman, but the text tells us and describes even in detail that the woman was made from the man. And we call this creation order. That's the terminology. We call this creation order. And this detail might not seem all that important. Say, Zach, okay, who cares? Maybe God just rolled the dice and set it up. I'm going to create the man first and then create the woman, but it doesn't really mean anything. To the contrary, it means a lot, especially when we get to the New Testament. This is the one specific aspect of the creation account used by the Apostle Paul in his letters to the churches, which serves as the foundation for his instructions regarding gender roles within the church and home. And so I think it's important for us to highlight this particular creation distinction between man and woman in light of what the New Testament teaches us. Now, listen, I'm going to mention, and we're going to look at a couple of New Testament passages today. 
We don't have time to read and study these passages in their entirety, nor look at all the relevant passages um, that pertain to this topic. But I do want us to look at a couple of them with a very specific goal. And that goal is to see how Paul, as he writes these letters, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uses Genesis chapter 2. What is Paul's, and because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's understanding of Genesis chapter 2? What did he want us to learn from how he designed man and woman, specifically the creation order? I want to start with 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. So if you'd like to turn there, you can. You don't have to. Um, I'm I'm not going to read a long passage from there. I'm just going to highlight a couple of verses and I'll read them. Uh, But if you want to flip there, that would be great. Um, I'll leave that up to you. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving instructions regarding head coverings for women in the context of the gathered church. Again, I have to reiterate, we don't have time to get into all the details of this passage. But let me just say that I think as we study that passage, we see that the head covering was a cultural application of the timeless principle of male leadership in the home and in the church. I really want us to focus on the timeless principle for right now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this, But I want you to understand, I'm reading from the Bible, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so in the sphere of the home in that verse, we see male leadership being commanded. Now, just as a side, and I just have to say this because it's here, if we think that somehow that's an inferior role, a wife submitting to her husband, I want you to realize that, that the passage says that Christ submits to God. <laughs> There's nothing inferior about Jesus when compared to his father. In fact, they're perfectly equal. It's just that Jesus has a different role, different function than God does. But then Paul talks about the requirement for wives to only pray or prophesy in the church under the authority of their husbands. And again, the cultural application in the city of Corinth was some sort of head covering. But the timeless principle is male leadership in the church. And I say timeless principle, I say that word timeless, which means this principle of male leadership in the home and in the church stretches across all generations and cultures because Paul specifically roots it not in the current cultural practices of the city of Corinth, like, well, this is just what people in our day and time do. He doesn't say that. He roots this principle of male leadership in the home and in the church in the creation of creation order of Genesis chapter 2. In that very passage in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this in verses 8 through 10. He says, for, that means, here's why. So if anybody wants to raise their hand and say, why, Paul? Why, Paul, should, should there be male leadership in the home and in the church? He says, he says let, me, let me answer that for you. For... Man was, made, was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. There he transitions to the cultural application of that timeless principle. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is giving the church at Corinth instructions regarding the roles of men and women in the home and church. Men are to have the responsibility of leading, and women are to submit to male leadership as they serve in various ways, such as in this case, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the text says praying and prophesying. But here's the main thing I want you to notice. In what does Paul root his instructions for these gender roles in the church and home? Does he root them in the cultural climate of the city of Corinth? No. Does he root them in Old Testament law, some of which is not applicable today? No. 
Does he root them simply in tradition, saying that this is just the way it's been done for a long time and so we shouldn't change it? No, not exactly. He does root gender roles in something that happened a long time ago, but it was not in the tradition of man, something that man made up. He roots these gender roles in one of the very first things that ever happened in the history of the world, and it's something that he did. He roots these gender roles in the church and home in the fact that on day six of creation, God created the man first and then the woman, and that he created the woman for the man and not the man for the woman. I'm only giving you the Bible's understanding of Genesis chapter 2. God has interpreted Genesis chapter 2 for us. And so we're just looking at God's understanding of his work in creation account. Paul very clearly looks back to the creation order in Genesis chapter 2 as the, bail, as the basis for male leadership in the home and the church. And that means, that's why I'm stressing this, because this is this argued against this in our culture today and even in some churches. Well, that, that's, that doesn't apply today. That's just something way back when. Paul, God's word, is saying, no, no. It's a timeless truth to be obeyed in every generation of human existence, regardless of the culture in which we live. Now, the specific application could change. For instance, head coverings in a culture may or may not convey submission to authority. In Corinth, they did. And so Paul says to women, wear them when you pray and prophesy. Because that was a cultural application of this timeless principle. But regardless of the specific application, what is non-negotiable for all people in all times is that God's creation order of men and women means men are created by God to lead and women to follow their leadership most clearly. And there's specifics in here. Again, we're not saying everything that could be said, but most clearly in the realm of the home and in the church. More could be said about this passage. Um, A lot more could be said, but I can just highlight certain verses for our purposes today. I want to go to another New Testament passage where we see male leadership in the church being rooted in God's creation order. And that's Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. So if you want to flip there, you can. We're going to look in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I've got to at least set the context for you. Paul is specifically talking about the church here. He is giving instructions for the gathering of the church. Okay, that's the context in which he's writing. He's writing to Timothy, who is kind of in a pastor role, helping the church in Ephesus um, uh, be what they're supposed to be for the glory of God. And so he's talking about the setting of a church. And he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. I'll start with the first part, his kind of instructions there. Because these words can very easily be misunderstood, I want you to remember what I said about the context, and I want us to pay very careful attention to the words, what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Paul is not saying a woman can never open her mouth at a church gathering. That's that's a horrible interpretation of that. That's not what he means, all right? Um, And we could go into detail and biblical uh, support for that. He's not saying uh, a woman cannot teach at all. Notice what he does say. He says she cannot teach or exercise authority over a man, the context of the church setting, which means it's perfectly fine for a woman to teach other women, male and female children. In fact, there's hundreds of ways for women to serve in the church which do not violate God's creation order. And many of those include speaking, (laughs) 
And some of those even include teaching. And the church needs godly women to serve. Church cannot be what the church is supposed to be without women and men doing what God's called each of them to do. We remember the context. It's that of a church. For instance, I don't think this passage in 1 Timothy is saying that it's necessarily wrong for a woman to teach a man in a college classroom. Paul's not writing this about college classrooms. He's writing this about a church. He's giving these instructions to a pastor of a church in Ephesus. We want to be careful when we think about um, biblical gender roles, we want to be careful not to add to the instructions or even restrictions that God gives. We don't want to twist the instructions to make them more restrictive. In fact, that's what Satan did in Genesis chapter 3. He tempted the woman to do. We don't want to add to what God's word says. But at the same time, we want to be careful not to ignore or take away from what God's word says. We don't want to say more than what God's word says. We also don't want to say less than what God's word says. These instructions for the church clearly prohibit women from teaching and exercising authority over men in the church. And if we continue to study what's extremely clear from this passage, from the following passage going into chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, from other places in the Scripture, is that women are not to hold the office of elder, pastor, bishop. That's the same office, three titles used interchangeably in Scripture. We often use the word pastor. The Bible more more often uses the word elder for that office in the church. And this restriction is consistent with what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2. Because the role of the elder, pastor, bishop, whichever word you want to use there, the role of the elder is to teach and give oversight of the church. That is to lead the church primarily through the teaching of God's word. That office is clearly reserved for men as women are not allowed to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, there's a danger in what I'm doing here today. Because we're not spending a lot of time in each of these passages and unpacking all that is there. So I know we're leaving, and I'm going to leave questions unanswered. My, I, want you to, I want you to focus in on kind of this main purpose of us going to the New Testament. is simply to see how Paul uses Genesis chapter 2. The main thing I want you to notice is the reason Paul gives for male leadership in the church, especially when it comes to teaching the gathered church. His reason is not a cultural norm found in the city of Ephesus. Again, he doesn't say, well, this is just how society works, and so you just need to do this to fit in with society. No. His reason is the chronological order in which God made the first man and woman. Notice what he says there in that verse. He says, for, that's again the signal. Somebody raised their hand and says, why, Paul? This is his answer to that question. For, Adam was formed first then Eve. That is his reason for giving this instruction, prohibiting women from teaching and exercising authority over men in the church, which means male leadership in the church and home is rooted, note this, note this, is rooted not in the personality of a man or of a woman. It's rooted, this creation order, these instructions are not rooted in the ability or capability of any particular man or woman nor in the training that a man or a woman has received. Male leadership in the church and home is rooted in God's original creation order. Paul doesn't say the reason is because men are smarter than women. No, he didn't say that. In fact, a lot of times, women are smarter than men. A lot of times, 
I'm dumber than my wife in a lot of different areas. And not just my wife, but other women as well. Women are not intellectually inferior to men. In fact, there are many women who are, who are way smarter than men, even when it comes to biblical knowledge. But biblical gender roles are not based on an intellectual aptitude test. The foundation the Bible gives for male leadership in the home and church is God's creation order, which means we must align our lives with this order simply out of obedience to God and trust that He is good and His Word is good. Because this principle of male leadership is rooted in God's creation order, it must be obeyed in any and every Christian home and church regardless of what century and regardless of what culture we find ourselves living in. Now, we find ourselves living in a century and in a culture which despises God's creation order. Not just people out in the world who don't believe in God or care not for the things of God, but even people that are in churches that say they believe God's word, but they despise still God's creation order. Recently I read an article by a woman who, academically speaking, is a Bible scholar, Uh, In this article, she was arguing against pretty much everything that I've said in this sermon. She said, there's no such thing as a creation order. Clearly, from Genesis through the New Testament, we see the Bible testifying to a creation order and its ongoing importance for our lives. And and I I tried to read her with an open mind and say, is is there something I can learn from her? Is there something I'm missing? But the more I read, the more I realized she's just jumping through all kinds of linguistic and theological hoops to try to explain away the clear teaching of Scripture. She sounded smart. In one sense, she was. She could have have aced a a Hebrew uh, language exam, and I probably would not ace a Hebrew language exam. But... She was wrong in her interpretation and therefore her application of Scripture on this issue. And I mention her simply as one example, which reveals that we've got to decide what we believe and get ready to stand firm on it. We've got to search the Scriptures and say, what does Scripture say? And if we believe the clear teaching of Scripture regarding gender roles, which I have done my best last week, I'm doing my best today to preach to you, we will not be liked by our culture. We will be hated by our culture. Friends, I think I said something similar last week. I want to say this again. I, for one, would rather be on the side of God's holy word than on the side of God's rebellious world. For all flesh, Isaiah says, is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Thankfully, our church and our Nomination of churches holds firm to the teaching of God's Word regarding biblical gender roles in the home and in the church, which are based, as we've said, in creation order of Genesis 2 and then are upheld throughout the Bible. It doesn't mean we always apply these beliefs the way that we should. We're humans. Our churches are made of human people. Our denomination of churches is made of human people, and, and we don't always apply these the right way. But we do affirm these beliefs, and I'm thankful for that. And sometimes that means we're ridiculed by our society. Sometimes that means people leave our churches and denominations. Recently, a very prominent lady in our own denomination announced she was leaving the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think she gave several reasons for that. Some may have been um, some more legitimate reasons, but one of the reasons was this exact issue that we're talking about today. I think, I think if I read her right, that she even apologized for her years of holding to the doctrine of complementarianism, which we talked about last week. 
which again is simply belief that men and women are equal in their essence, but different in their roles, function as assigned by God, as explained in God's word. She apologized for, for holding to that belief. I'm not denying at all that she's helped many women through the years, through her teaching and uh, conferences and Bible study curriculum and books that she's written. I'm not denying that at all. But it appears that at this point now she's caved to cultural pressure on this issue. And so um, she, if she doesn't, if her beliefs don't align with what we believe as a denomination of churches, then she need, needed to leave. It doesn't mean that God may not still be able to use her in different ways, but, but it's okay. We need to stand firm on this teaching of God's word. Now, have there been men in the home and in the church who have abused their God-given role of leadership? Absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, in many and numerous ways. And any time a man or a woman finds that, that he or she is, has applied what God's Word says in a wrong way, it will bring dishonor to God and has stepped outside the bounds of Scripture, there needs to be repentance for sure. But they, they are wrong, not the Bible. Have men abused their positions of leadership? Absolutely, but they are wrong, not the Bible. We don't respond to a sinful application of God's Word by rejecting the clear teaching and principles of God's Word. Now, I know I've just picked two women as negative examples that I've shared with you, but there are plenty of men in churches and denominations of churches throughout our society who have also caved on this issue and fully support women women serving in the office of elder in the church, who gladly sit under the teaching of women in the church and who reject male leadership in the home, all of which is a rejection of the clear teaching of Scripture. And yet at the same time, at the same time, there are many men and many women who are standing firm upon God's word in this area. There are many men and women who are holding firm to God's design of men and women despite the cultural backlash. Recently, I attended a trustee meeting of one of our uh, seminaries, uh, one of our Southern Baptist seminaries, where I uh, had the privilege of serving as a trustee. And one of the things we do as trustees is we elect faculty um, to the seminary there. But before the faculty is elected, we make sure to the best of our ability, that they hold to our doctrinal convictions, that they're teaching what we believe the Bible teaches. And one of our doctrinal convictions of our seminary, that uh, all of our seminaries, and specifically the one that I serve as trustee at, one of our doctrinal convictions is the belief that the Bible teaches complementarianism. And praise God, there are both men and women who we as trustees have the privilege of electing to serve in the role of faculty who wholeheartedly affirm the teaching that we've seen in God's Word here today. Recently, uh, we elected a woman to the faculty there who is very, very smart, um, has an incredible understanding of God's Word. Uh, she has an incredible gift of teaching God's Word, uh, but she's not trying to serve as pastor of a church. She's not trying to use her God-given gifts and abilities to exercise authority over men in her church. And it's not because she lacks the ability or lacks the training or lacks the biblical knowledge, but it's because she believes exactly what God's Word teaches on this issue. And instead of rejecting biblical gender roles, she's using her gifts that God has given her to train women in seminary to be highly trained, intellectually astute, biblically intelligent ministers to women and children in the churches and homes where they will eventually serve. I could give more examples. I want to give more. I just want to be respectful of our time here today. 
I have women in my own life who um, in some ways can run circles around me when it comes to uh, their knowledge of God's Word, their love for God's Word, their devotion to God, um, who are amazingly gifted in many and numerous ways, even in teaching God's Word. And yet, they believe what God's Word teaches here. And so they've chosen to submit their lives to God's Word first and foremost and say, I'm going to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given me in ways that He has told me I can use them. And I'm going to do that joyfully for the glory of God. I could go into more detail, but by the grace of God, I got to grow up in a home with a mother who's one of those that I'm speaking about. And by the grace of God, I now get to live in a home with the mother of my children, my wife, who is an example of that. And there are many others that I could say as well, even other family members. And I say that because I commend them. I, I, I thank them for standing up for what the Bible teaches in a society that hates us for believing what I am preaching here today. It takes great courage and it takes great love for the Word of God and great trust that God and His ways are good. I have much to learn from their example of obedience to God's Word. The call to biblical gender roles is not a call for women to be dumb and not use their God-given abilities and gifts, but it is a call for all of us to surrender our lives to God's will, and God's will for our lives never contradicts His Word, including His creation order and all His instructions which are rooted in His creation order. Now, some, some may think, maybe even some of you might think that I'm making too much of this issue. Certainly the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone is more important than the role of men and women in the home and the church. Certainly the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ are more important doctrines than complementarianism. And in one sense, I would agree. I would agree. I don't think a person's salvation is determined by the view that they hold on gender roles. However, any time, and this has been confirmed even this week in things that I've read and things that I've seen and listening to other people, any time we reject any biblical doctrine, regardless of its level of theological importance, we are setting ourselves up to start sliding down the slippery slope of throwing aside more and more and more and more biblical doctrine. For instance, churches and denominations who years ago rejected the Bible's teaching regarding the roles of men and women in the church and began allowing women to serve as pastors, many of those churches and denominations are now allowing practicing homosexuals to not only become members of their church, but to serve in the role of pastor and as leaders in their denominations. That didn't happen overnight. They took one small step away from God's Word, which made the next step a little bit easier, and the next step a little bit easier as the culture around them changed. Once you begin to place a higher priority upon what culture says when compared to one aspect 
of God's creation order, it won't be long before you place a higher priority upon what culture says when compared to all of God's creation order. You start by failing to see the clear necessity of both men and women, and then you reject the complementary distinctions between men and women, which leads to a rejection of the whole created order of men and women. And before long, you don't even know what gender is. And you don't really care. And you're teaching that in your church. And throughout this whole destructive process of tearing apart God's created order, what happens is the bedrock relationship of humanity. I'm not speaking of our relationship with God. Ultimately, that is the most important relationship. But throughout this whole destructive process of tearing apart God's created order, the bedrock relationship of every human society gets slowly disassembled and ultimately trampled upon. And that bedrock relationship, human relationship, of every human society is marriage. It's marriage. Which, not coincidentally, but rather providentially, is given and explained very concisely, very clearly, very profoundly in the last two verses of Genesis chapter 2 which lead to our fourth point for today, which, as I said, is really next week's sermon. So I'm going to give it to you, spend about one minute on it, and then we'll begin to wrap up. Our fourth and final truth for this passage is this. God designed human society to be built upon the covenantal union between a man and a woman. The covenantal union between a man and a woman. After God helps Adam see that something is missing, puts Adam to sleep, performs surgery, creates a woman, wakes Adam up, brings the woman to Adam, inspires Adam to think and then speak clearly about this woman, then God explains that the result of all of this was the very first marriage. The text says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. These are the most foundational words about marriage in all of human history. Time and again, the writers of Scripture and Jesus himself refer back to these words when talking about marriage, which means our time today is not sufficient time to even begin unpacking these two verses. That's okay. I think we have enough spiritual truth to chew on and digest. So, Lord willing, we will come back to these two verses on marriage next week, and I'm, I'm super excited about it. We're going to unpack God's design marriage. It is a good and it is a beautiful design. For now, let me just say that the covenantal union between a man and a woman, which we call marriage, is clearly explained in God's word. And thus, it too is a part of God's original creation order. And it is a part, his design for man and woman is a part of human flourishing when practiced according to God's design. And so God designed human society to be built upon the clear necessity of both man and woman, upon the complementary distinctions between man and woman, upon the created order of man and woman, and upon the covenantal union of a man and a woman. These truths are foundational for any human society to flourish, remember, ultimately, to the glory of God. Now let me close by saying this. We are looking at Genesis chapter 2, at God's world when it was perfect. In Genesis chapter 3, a drastic change takes place. Humans reject God and his word. They reject God's design of man and woman, and the result is death instead of life, curses instead of blessing. Perhaps you're listening to what the Bible says about gender roles, and there's something inside of you that's pushing back. Some voice saying, I don't really like that. I don't, I don't, that is, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about that. 
That, that, I'm not sure that's right. That, that can't be right. I just want you to remember that we live in Genesis 3. We live in a world where God's good world and pure human hearts have been infiltrated by sin, which means that our hearts are prone to stray from the things of God. Our hearts are prone to stray from God and His Word. It means that we as believers must battle against the schemes of the devil and the sinful desires of our own human hearts every day as we seek to order our lives around God's creation order. And our attempts to live out what we see in Genesis chapter 2 would be completely in vain, except that in Genesis chapter 3, we also see a promise. We see a promise of a man born of woman who would come and who would take away our sin. We see a promise of a man born of woman who would come to destroy that serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. A promised deliverer. And we know who this is. Friends, He is Jesus. He is the one who was promised and He is the one who has come. And He is the one who rescues us from our sin through His death in our place and His resurrection from the grave. And so the first step towards ordering our lives after God's good design is to repent of our sin, to repent of our rebellion against our Creator and to turn to Jesus in faith to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that He paid the price for you. He took your punishment upon Himself and that He is able, because He died and rose from the dead, He is able to forgive you of every one of your sins. And He is able to give you a free gift of everlasting life with Him. That is the first step in ordering our lives after God's original design. And then, as Christians, we follow Him daily, keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ, filling our minds continually with God's Word, and daily submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in us who guides us into truth. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in us. If you'd like to talk to someone today about believing in Jesus for salvation, I'll be more than happy to talk with you as soon as the service is over. Or if you are a follower of Jesus, but you're struggling to order your life According to God's creation order, I'd be glad to talk to you right after service or any time this week. I'd be glad to talk with you and try to just pray with you and help you um, learn how to, how to apply truth of God's Word to your life and your specific context. Not because I have all the answers, but just because I love you and I love God's Word and I want all of us to know the joy that comes when we say yes to the ways of God. That is the good life. That is the good life. Because our God who created us is a good God. If you don't believe that, just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. He loves you. He loves me very much. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I confess that it is not easy. It is not easy to stand firm upon Your Word when we know 
that what your word says is very different than what is popular around us. God, I don't preach this message because I think I know it all. I don't preach this message because because it's just the way I was raised believing this. God, I simply preach this message because I love your word. And your word has proven to be true and good in my life time and time again. And God, every time we stray from your word in any area, though it may seem good in the short run, it always leads to destruction. So God, I pray that you would help us continue to learn from your word regarding your design of man and woman. Certainly we have not said, I have not said everything that could be said and needs to be said and needs to be learned, needs to be taught and needs to be preached. God, that takes a lot of time, even a lifetime. But God, I do pray that we would submit our lives humbly to your word, both women and men. God, our hearts are prone to reject your teaching. The hearts of women, the hearts of men. But thank you for Jesus, who rescues us from our strain. Who, as the good and perfect shepherd and overseer of our souls, brings back his sheep. At the cost of his own life. Not so that we would continue to reject your word and live life however we want to live and however our culture says we should live. But God, the good shepherd, has laid down his life so that we could and so that we can align our lives with your word. And God, as I prayed at the beginning of this service, not only for our own sake, not only for the sake of our own families and our own church, but Father, for the sake of the lost around us, because it is when we look different than the world around us that we shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ. That's when we adorn the gospel for the world around us, when we obey the truth of your gospel and the truth of your word. So God, as we lift our voices in praise to you, God, may you continue to work your truth of the truth of your word into our hearts and souls today. May you receive this next act of worship as pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.